The following podcast is a production of Commercial Investment Real Estate Magazine, the official publication of CCIM Institute. For more on the latest trends, best practices, and continuing education in all areas of the industry, visit our website at ccim.com and sign up for our education e-newsletter. Welcome back to Commercial Investment Real Estate Podcast. I'm Nicholas Leiter, Senior Content Editor for the magazine. In this episode, you'll hear from Maggie Coleman, Managing Partner with BFIN, where she leads the Private Capital Authority real estate platform. She recently spoke with Chad Gleason, CCIM, Managing Director of Pentaveret Global Investments at the 2020 CCIM Global Conference. In this second of its special two-part series of podcasts, she details regional differences and how foreign capital views the U.S. and what different CRE sectors might expect in 2021. You'll hear the audio recording of their fireside chat at the conference. What's your perspective on foreign capital and how they view placements here in the U.S.? And you can expand maybe regionally in regards to, uh, you know, is Europe looking for something different than maybe Asia, et cetera? Sure. And I think it's, you know, it's, it is absolutely a region by region assessment. And when those regions were experiencing their own COVID shutdown was a big driver for how they were participating in cross-border investments. And to the you know extent they were impacted by COVID, I think certainly played a huge role in, in, in some of their activity. But I think when you start with the Middle East, you see the sovereign wealth funds that we talked about earlier. You know, they're, again, being fiduciaries of state-owned, uh, of state funds, they actually really turned inward and wanted to place more capital within the region to support what was happening relative to some of the uncertainty. So we saw um, some of the sovereigns um, speak to us about identifying, you know, still office assets and, and, and um, large-scale plays, but really that capital turned inward. Where we saw a lot of Middle Eastern interest was from the high net worth syndicators, and those syndicators really were activated and participated in a lot of the industrial and really branched into multifamily as well um, over the past year. And when I talk about the fact that, you know, they're starting to look into new sectors, a fair amount of education goes into these investors and, and getting them comfortable with sectors in the U.S. So it's not a quick decision for them to move. So when you do see them moving into a new sector, it's quite notable. In Asia, we saw a couple of different capital sources really step into a more active role. One, the Singaporean REITs, which are subsidiaries of the large Singaporean state sovereign wealth funds. You have really two, Tomasek and GIC, and they have subsidiaries that own really large REITs. And while their REIT prices did take hits, as most REITs did you know, globally, they also really looked outward and wanted to find opportunities for scale. And so they like large-scale plays, whether that's big industrial portfolios or large multifamily portfolios. They want to place a lot of capital in transactions. Some of that will be taken down on their balance sheet. Some of that they'll actually sell REIT shares. They'll put it into their S-REIT programs and they'll sell REIT shares there locally in Singapore with U.S. investments backing them. So it's a very, again, liquid program. Those So Singaporean REITs are very active. Also in Asia, the Korean pensions and the Korean asset managers have been very active. Part of that has been driven by 
they've got, had a very um, favorable uh, decline in hedging costs. And by that, I mean, there's usually a spread that you know foreign investors have to pay to account for Fed, um, FX currency fluctuations, and that creates a cost associated with hedging. And that can be what is typically called 100, an extra 150 basis points. Well, in 2019, Korean hedging costs dramatically increased. And with our low interest rates, it came, th- those hedging costs came in. So Korean investors were, are, are extremely active. And again, that's the Korean asset managers and pension funds. The Canadian capital, which I think is always a really interesting topic, there are always some biggest source of offshore, even though they are friendly neighbor to the north. And, you know, people think of them really almost as part of the um, fabric of North America. Well, they are part of the fabric of North America, but think, don't really think of them as offshore. Um, and the Canadian pensions have been some of the largest, you know, buyers and investors in uh, U.S. real estate. So we've seen Canada continue to have a desire to invest in the U.S. Part of that is driven by, again, these pension funds are safeguarding, you know, a growing allocation to real estate from employee retirement funds, which they're, you know, which are, are for savings. But the Canadian real estate market, for as many people as they have, is, is quite small. And so, you know, they look outwardly when they look to real estate. They're growing their U.S. presence. They're also growing their European presence as well and their Asian presence. So the Canadian pensions are very, very active. And then within Europe, you know, we've seen Germany be very, German open-ended funds be very active in the U.S. The European insurance companies and the European pensions continue to be very active in the U.S., all looking for yield, all looking for those factors that we talked about earlier. So- these global investors, offshore capital is focused on the U.S. market. Can you walk us through a couple of the key products they're looking for? And what is it that has them calling that? Sure. Again, it speaks to, I think, the, the depth and breadth of the U.S. market. And for as much variety in terms of asset class and risk profile as there is in the U.S., there's a number of offshore investors who are interested in those sectors and in those risk profiles. So it's you know quite different depending on the region, the maturity, or how uh, well-versed they are in a particular sector as new sectors gain momentum and become either less fragmented in the U.S. and more institutional, and then obviously the risk profile. So we've talked a lot about industrial, and you know we actually began educating a lot of our offshore clients around industrial, call it 24 months ago. You know, you could just see the industrial market becoming more institutionalized, large-scale plays happening. And you could also see the rise of e-commerce, although that's clearly been accelerated, and many people have talked about that over the last year. But the interest in industrial is quite notable. And what has really transpired is a deeper understanding of what makes a good industrial market in the U.S. versus the markets that many foreign investors just know. So Why would they buy in a Columbus, Ohio or in Indianapolis, Indiana? You know, everyone knows the Inland Empire. Everyone knows, you know, Dallas is an industrial hotspot. But there's more to the industrial corridors that I think foreign capital is getting really smart around. And they're participating in deals and in assets that don't necessarily um, aren't markets that, you know, back in their home country, people know and that roll off you know, their tongue with these. So that's been, (laughs) 
we've had a lot. We had, we spent a lot of time talking about the Columbus and the Indianapolis relative to industrial. You know, the other area that you know, when you talk to a lot of investors, particularly out of Asia, that's top of mind is multifamily. That's been a process of educating uh, investors, whether Asia or European, just around the multifamily market, which isn't the same abroad as it is here. The market here, with respect to the, the, the really strong historical returns that multifamily has driven, along with the fact that the U.S. is really undersupplied from a multifamily perspective, has really started to take hold. And investors abroad really now understand that. And so they're responding to that market and really came in pretty actively, starting with the Canadian pensions and has moved into, you know, we've seen interest from Korea, we've seen significant interest from Singapore, but really trying to identify that product. And it's a lot of it's been in Dallas and Denver and, you know, the markets that we call, you know, the Sun Belt or the Smile States, those they're very familiar with. I think that that's been a really interesting phenomenon to watch. And I think a lot of it, you know, they're now tracking corporate and demographic shifts the same way U.S. investors are relative to where we think, you know, there's going to be opportunity for multifamily. And it's going to be interesting to see where we're, we're actually having conversations around some of the tech corridors and the innovation centers, again, here in the Midwest. So why Madison, Wisconsin? Why uh, Detroit, why, you know, Minneapolis, and those, those markets are starting to resonate from a multifamily perspective as well. You being in Seattle, you've seen it. I'm sure you've seen right. it. Right. We've been blessed having Microsoft and Amazon in our back door. So you could see it grow at a, at a, at a rate that's just incredible, but you're seeing that now happen in, you know, Charlotte, you're seeing it in Austin, you're seeing that replicated in the growth. And obviously the office and the industrial follows, the multifamily follows and everything uh, accordingly. So as the pockets start going in the, that distribution, uh, yeah. that last mile, I need my stuff in less than 24 hours when I order it online seems to be um, not just a West Coast thing or an East Coast thing. It's it's a countrywide. That's absolutely uh, right. That entire story is, is driving interest, you know, where they're looking at office, you know, investments now. I think there's, you know, grocery anchored retail is still, you know, of interest when, within the retail sector. Um, but that, that's primarily where we spend most of our time. And then we're starting to get questions around niche sectors of, you know, data center, life sciences and self-storage. So this section here, I, I have it actually titled Maggie's Insights on the Market. And, you know, from your perspective, we've talked about global capital. Obviously, capital is kind of right in between everything. So if someone wants to buy something, they need that capital. You're involved in a lot of conversations. You're a lot, uh, involved in a lot of planning, strategic planning for uh, these larger investment groups. This year, what has surprised you as a class perspective or capital markets? What's been like the biggest thing outside of COVID that you've seen that's really been insightful to you? There's been a lot of surprises, as you mentioned. <laughs> I think just from a fundamental perspective, one of the biggest and, and most interesting surprises, and we've touched on this just in kind of as we've been talking about the interest in sectors, that you know, when you look at other you know, disruptions in our industry, you've typically seen the asset classes moving in the same direction, albeit at different rates, but, you know, usually transaction volume trends up and either trends down. 
And I think this is a really unique experience for all of us in real estate because you're seeing, you know, certain sectors trending in a very positive, with a positive momentum. And that's, you know, the industrial story, the multifamily story, life sciences, you know, with interest peaking up, pricing, holding, transaction volume in some markets, you know, continuing to, to grow. And then you have this other um, part of the market that has really been hit and is either flat or, or somewhat down as you've seen with retail and hotel. So I think that that's been something that's really caught all of us, you know, off guard and has really challenged us to think about, you know, how do you respond to a market where there's these differing um, trajectories by sector? And, and what does that mean for the market overall? And what does that mean for someone's strategy? And I think that as a follow-on to that, what was, what's was what been really surprising and interesting is how quickly investors pivoted from playing, you know, defense and looking only at their, you know, portfolios and, and you know, really focused on portfolio management and asset management during the real acute time frame of call it March through June when we were all just kind of shell-shocked to really quickly saying, okay, well, we still have capital. There's still capital, right? There's still capital we have to allocate. We still have equity. They're still financing. You know, the lenders were still lending. So where do we find opportunity? And so you saw a quick pivot to just kind of going on the offense. And, you know, people were looking at the, you know, whether it was the public REITs or looking at specific sectors to say, where now am I going to look for the opportunity in this um, challenging environment and try and create, you know, opportunities for their platform. So that, and it was a really quick pivot. And it's, you know, I think it's continued. I think people are still kind of both playing defense and offense in a, in a pretty strategic way. So uh, kind of expanding on that, you know, institutional buyers are, are looking at building their, there's uh, capital out there to go. They're trying to find deals. How are institutions viewing portfolio constructions at the parent level during this time? Is their appetite changing in any way from a, a aggressive standpoint? Are they looking for value or are they looking long term? It's really the latter, your, your latter comment. Um, they're really long term focused. So when you, you, you look at the, you know, a lot of the large institutions that we're talking about, the pensions, you know, they are long-term investors. They look across a, a long-term horizon given their fiduciary responsibilities. They tend to try and pace their commitments. So I think where there was an instinct to really, you know, try and see some opportunities, I think a lot of, um, you know, investment committees were asking themselves, you know, is this a deal that we need to do in 2020? Or is this a deal that is replicable in 2021? You know, do we have to put the money out now? Which I think, you know, having that long-term horizon is a, is a good thing. And, and it really creates less of a kind of reactive environment. Um, and so, you know, I think that there is still a tremendous appetite for, for real estate. And so that has not changed. There's still, there's a lot of debates going on around office, but there's still, there's still is a view that, you know, office matters and there's still capital that's going to be placed in office. And, you know, it's, 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 you know, will it look exactly like it did before with how we all work? Who knows? But 
there's still a, a view, you know, that there's long-term office, there's long-term retail, there's long-term travel at some point will pick up. So there will be hotel, you know, activity coming back. It's just a matter of when. Um, and I think the other thing that's been changing with portfolio management and just how some of the investors are looking across their portfolios is just, you know, again, this introduction and, and focus on niche sectors that make a lot of sense given what, you know, where we are in um, just with e-commerce. And again, that means is there data center exposure on your portfolio? You probably, you know, want some. Is there um, certain kinds of, you know, life science or medical office? I mean, all of those factors, I think the new sector, self-storage, people are seeing as being more of a part of their portfolio strategy. And, you know, that's, I think, been, um, again, accelerated in this environment. With that, their, their targets, when you talk about opportunities, you talk about value, obviously, you know, we're still in the middle of COVID. It's not going away anytime fast. So the news of a, a potential vaccine showed up and which I think would uh, relieve some of that stress from a um, fixed asset kind of mentality mm -hmm. of inputting mm -hmm. cash. But with regards to uh, values, uh, we're seeing a bit of a difference in trying to track down that value. So is it opportunistic? Obviously, there was a little bit of a down, a little bit of a stall. Things are going up. Some of these products never really dropped. Yeah. And so what are you seeing from evaluation? Are landlords expectations of these products that are, are that we're discussing, those uh, industrial, you know, Amazon warehouse distribution, cold storage, uh, there seems to be a 5 to 10% discrepancy in expected value and want to buy value. What has caused that? Still, there's still a, a bid-ask gap. I think that there's still, again, the uh, capital that was placed into the market through the CARES Act, coupled with, you know, again, this wasn't a credit, you know, credit crisis. There was still, you know, a, a lot of capital on both equity and debt you know, they're ready to be placed into real estate assets across the sectors. So I, I think that that's probably one of the, the main factors between that bid, you know, that bid-ask gap. I think that there was an expectation that sellers, you know, were going to be flush with distress. And I don't think we saw that. I think that, you know, there was uh, sellers who were able to refinance there, again, depending on your sector, if you're in industrial multifamily and some instances single tenant office your, your your pricing was holding so um i think some of that bid ask gap has been reactionary i think it will see it kind of even out i think a lot of it had to do with expectations and what was really happening you know on the ground do you find that that stimulus as it starts coming off we're going to have a more realistic valuation it's a good question i don't think anyone really has a has a you know crystal ball it's just it really depends on when do we get a vaccine and, you know, when can we return to a pace that could, you know, get some people back to work. And I think that when you look across multifamily, the occupancy levels are continuing to hold in many of the uh, markets that, you know, we track. And um, it's so, so I don't know the answer to that. I don't know, you know, what, what unfolds after, you know, that, that stimulus wears out. It's almost like it comes back into that checklist of the risk assessment. The elections are over, check. Right. Uh, vaccine potential coming sooner, check. Uh, where you're feeling a little bit more confident to put that money into the environment. So that being said, 
demographic shifts to urban areas. Downtown Seattle isn't quite as busy as it was pre-COVID. <laughs> uh, I think that that's replicated around the country due to that exodus. So deurbanization is top of every survey. Uh, we were talking to ULI. We talked in other uh, articles about that. So what's been top of mind for offshore investors as they assess U.S. gateways and these secondary markets that are now being, uh, everyone's living there and now everyone's working mm-hmm. there. It's a really good question, and and I agree. Deurbanization has been it's it's like you know flavor du jour, and people are talking about it. I think two facets to it. There's the story around the gateways and what's been happening with population shifts from the New Yorks and San Fran's or Northern California Silicon Valley, and I think those conversations were happening even pre-COVID. I think with just some of the, the fiscal you know stories out of some of our major areas and the favorable tax. Uh, situations in places like Dallas and, and in, you know, Tampa have really, you know, it's benefited from a demographic move to those areas. And I think that that coupled with just how competitive core pricing was getting in a lot of the gateways already put the, the what I would call secondary or even non-gateways, because I don't, you know, Seattle's not a secondary market anymore. It's just kind of a non-gateway. It's a pretty strong market. Um, it already put those markets on the radar for foreign investors. So there was already a focus on the Seattle, Dallas, Denver, Nashville, Raleigh, you know, all of Boston, all of those markets were on the radar for foreign capital. The movement that we've seen since COVID has you know certainly increased that and again I think has really just opened up the idea that there are even other secondary markets where they should be taking note and, and starting to take a look at. And again, I think some of those beneficiaries may be in the Midwest um, that you know are markets where you have really strong education, uh, educated populations, universities, tech corridors, lot, you know, big healthcare systems, et cetera. I think that, so that's one kind of the deorganization story. And I think the, the, sec, the secondary or non-gateways are, are of tremendous appetite for foreign investors. I think the other piece of the deurbanization has been the move from the CBD in each of these areas to the suburbs, which again, you know, there's been this kind of push and pull. There was a lot of discussions with the millennials, you know, were they going to, you know, were they going to basically empty out the suburbs? No one was going to go back. And now you're seeing people flood back. And it's a real phenomenon. I mean, I'm, I'm sitting here in Chicago and there was a real movement of people. Some people bought houses in the suburbs who I think probably never expected to be buying homes in the suburbs because of their experience with COVID. But, you know, the suburban story has always been a strong one in the U.S. market. I think, you know, the suburban office has always performed well and has been, it makes up the bulk of the office footprint in the U.S. I think, you know, the walkability, you know, the I guess the sur- suburban areas where, you know, it's very much walkable, great retail, you know, kind of that live, work, play, you know, are, are really performing well. So I think that there's going to be, you know, a balance relative to this kind of manic sense that, you know, everyone's either going to, you know, leave and, and go to the suburbs and, you know, what we saw before with everyone, with no one you know, going back to the suburbs. I think it's really just going to be a balance. I think the work from home is going to allow for some companies to look at suburban outposts and give their employees an option. I think some urban areas, they're going to rethink space and rethink green space and rethink how, you know, they can utilize space 
in this next environment. There's definitely some some changes, but I don't think it's quite as as dramatic and manic as you know one might think. So um, is that you know we talked about Canada being a bit of a lead uh, with that, and traditionally historically it's very much been there. Um, yes. And then you're looking at the Asia Pacific rim. Is that um, they're they're fairly close, and it's not, uh, and that's really I think we feel more of it maybe on the on the West Coast traditionally. Uh, yes. What are your thoughts? Yeah, no, it's it's really interesting. I think that there's that there has definitely been a an increase in notable uh, you know activity from the Asian investors in the the U.S. market, and that's probably what is driving that interest in understanding what their you know investment interests are. And I think when you look across, you know, Asia is a big it's a big region. You saw you know there was an influx of Chinese capital you know, in 2013 and 2014, when that spout turned off, you had a rise in, you know, the Singaporean investment activity here. And then, you know, Korean capital has always been here. The Japanese investors, um, we've, we have a lot of Japanese developers who are investing in the U.S. There's, you know, we're, we're kind of waiting with bated breath for the Japanese pensions, which have, you know, $8 trillion of capital to deploy to enter into the real estate market and um, come cross-border in a big way. So I, I, I absolutely think Asia is a, is a fascinating kind of storyline for cross-border for the next, you know, for this next uh, cycle. They seem to be really flying in that development. They were developing areas and now they're becoming institutional. And then the new ones are coming up. We're seeing not just Pacific Rim, but we're seeing Southeast, Southeast Asia. Vietnamese uh, Malaysians are now becoming more involved. Is, is that something Correct. you're spending? Yeah, no, we are. We're talking to, you know, the pension funds in Malaysia. Um, the, the Southeast Asia is, you know, becoming, I think, more interested in, in deploying their capital. And uh, it's, it, what's really interesting when you, you know, just taking it out of the, I know everyone here is kind of U.S. invest, you know, focus here. But when we talk about that de-urbanization story, it's it's there's a stat someone gave me and I, I don't quote me on it because it may not quite be right but there's something like you know a million people moving into cities you know each month in Asia like if you talk like that is a true story of urbanization it's really it's really incredible so they are becoming you know more active savers and you know that capital is going to have to move so I think that uh, absolutely the story in Asia Pack is is clearly of interest to the audience and one, I, like I said, I think it's going to be really fascinating to track here in the near term. So we have a few questions in, in limited time here, but I'm going to go through some really quick. Um, um, they're not rapid fire, but they'll be relatively yeah. quick. Um, is there a specific area or one or two areas in the U.S. that seems to be really uh, ripe for global investment that you see coming up? I don't think that there's one specific area. I mean, again, I think it just really depends on the appetite. I think, you know, if we were to look at 2019, it was Boston, Austin, Texas, and Seattle. You know, that was, those were the hot spots that, you know, capital seemed to really want to find deal opportunities. But I think any of these cities that, again, have, you know, a really interesting story around innovation, of you know tech, life science, university settings, all are, are are feeding into this interest from foreign capital. And I think 
some foreign investors feel, you know, this will be an interesting time to return to the gateways that they've been priced out of. And so there may be, you know, yields to harness or life, you know, for, for some of the high net worth capital, they think this could be a really interesting time to find generational hold type opportunities in the San Fran's and in the New York. So there's not really one, you know, hot spot that I think, I think it just really depends on what the interest is from, from these investors. Retail is taking a little hit. Uh, hospitality is taking yeah. a little hit. Um, is that no longer an attractive place? Will that change in the future? Retail has been um, has historically been interesting for foreign investors. I think retail, I think they view retail the same as domestic. I think that they, you know, retail that's performing and retail that's strong is still an area that's of interest. Grocery anchored retail, um, in some cases, again, that generational hold high street retail. Those are still pockets where we see uh, foreign investors, you know, looking and 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 really deeply thinking about. Um, so retail is absolutely still of interest. And again, the single tenant retail story where you have that fixed income, you know, smaller bite sizes, smaller deal sizes for foreign investors is is really still an interesting space for them. So retail is certainly still on their interest. But I think just like domestic investors, it's, um, you know, there's there's a lot of unknowns that they're grappling with. Hotels, I think similarly, there's a sense that Again, people will travel again, and the hotels will come back, and it's just a matter of time. So, foreign capital has been a huge, you know, component of the hotel investment transaction place, and so I think they will continue to be so to do so. Crystal ball time. Okay. Twenty twenty one. Is it going to be better than twenty twenty? <laughs> Even with all of the uncertainty in 2020, we all found some green shoots and some things to smile about and some some really good stories. So, um, you know, I'm one of those people who, you know, when, you know, you get the get the memes that say, when is 2020 going to be over? And I'm like, well, you know, 2020, I know it's been it's been uncertain, but there there's been some really positive things that have come out of this experience for everybody. Um, so I don't know if 2021 is going to, I wouldn't say better or worse. I think obviously 2021 is going to be different and, you know, you know, it may give us some line of sight to what it looks like on the other side as, you know, the quarantine and, and the really challenging logistics that we've all been contending with, but I don't know if it's, I would say better. I think it's just going to be different. There you go. It's a not. It's a non-answer. I know. Yeah, <laughs> I know uh, you wanted. Uh, you wanted something controversial with a bang. Yeah. No. That's like. It's um. It's a moving target, and um. Yeah. You know, sometimes you think it'd get any worse. Um. But reality is that it's offered a lot of opportunity, and I, I always look at it that way, uh, as well. There's opportunity, and when things go, people uh, are finding way to look at real estate differently. There's still an appetite. The U.S. is still Absolutely. and will always be a big target for global international investment dollars. And, um, you know, we're, we're getting over this hurdle. And I, and I think that though business will get back, I don't know what normal looks like anymore. I think it's going to be adapted and different. But I, I think your, your, your views uh, were, were pretty accurate simply because there's, there's opportunity and where opportunity people want to go find deals. So there's deals. Thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciated it.
Big thank you to the CCIM Institute and the International Activities Committee for allowing us uh, the time today. Thank you for listening to the second episode of this special two-part series with Maggie Coleman. Don't miss the first half of Maggie's conversation where she discusses cross-border investment among global regions and across asset classes. Head to SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Join us next month for a brand new episode of Commercial Investment Real Estate Podcast, featuring another leading figure from the world of commercial real estate.